Genesis chapter 17. To give you a heads up, uh, Jason Eamon next week is going to be preaching from Hebrews chapter 1, uh, 1 through 4. So if you want to prepare for that this week, be reading in Hebrews. And then we'll be coming back uh, into Genesis when we get back uh, from Cable and I from our refresh time. I'm going to ask God's help on our time in the Word today. Father, help us as we come to your Word. It is yours, not ours. It is for us, but it is from you. Um, and we need to receive the truths as they are the voice of God, but we need to understand them, and that is sometimes difficult. It's a big book. It's written a long time ago, and there are things that are sometimes confusing or difficult for us, not just in the understanding but often is difficult for us in the implementation and believing what we read. So I ask that your spirit would give us faith today that would come through the word, through the hearing of the word, and that we would receive these truths about you, from you, for us, and be changed by them. We pray these things in Jesus' name, our Lord and God, amen. We read Genesis 17 last week, uh, looked at the ritual of circumcision in detail and sort of did a very brief uh, biblical theology of circumcision, of what this was. It's a very important ritual in the Old Testament, so it, it captures a lot of attention. We need to understand it. Um, this week, we're going to, as we read 17 again, we're not obviously going to read it again right now. Um, but I hope it's fresh in your mind. I hope you've been thinking about it for the last couple weeks, for the last week and then this week, and then read it again and reminded you. Um, because as I said last week, we had to focus on circumcision because it's such a significant part of this text. And now we're going to go back and work through the text again and, and think through the narrative, the story, what's happening again, bringing out those other details. Last week I, I mentioned, I, I don't know if you remember or not, uh, but I mentioned that this is one of the most artistic Hebrew expressions in Genesis. Moses outdoes himself in the Hebrew language. It doesn't come across that way in the English really at all. Sometimes when the Hebrew poetry is there, it comes across a little bit, but here it just seems to just get buried completely in our English translation of it. Um, there are many ways that people thus try to organize this text because it's got so many different Hebrew layers in it. We're just going to focus on one of those today, and that was the chiastic structure that I looked at last week. Um, the text begins in verse 1 with a setting, and if you remember the Hebrew chiasm, it's parallel ideas kind of building toward the middle, and then kind of descending from the middle, and it has, the setting begins with the description, Abraham was 99 years old. The text ends, the last paragraph and Abraham was 99 years old, and Ishmael, his son, was 13. So it's giving us these time markers in parallel form in the beginning and the end of this chapter. And then we have in between those two time markers, we have five speeches that God makes, five discourses that God has with Abraham regarding the character and promise of God's covenant to him. Those speeches build, the middle one, the third speech, is really the most significant of them. 
it's very different than the other four as well. The other four speeches are all God saying what he's going to do. That third speech in the middle is then he says, okay, Abraham, this is what you need to do. And it's that doctrine or that ritual of circumcision is what he's going to talk about there. Again, we won't spend much time on that third speech today because that was the emphasis last week. So you can see just sort of the building in the text, first speech, second speech, third speech, fourth speech, fifth speech, and then the setting on the end. What I want to do today is I want to walk through this narrative, walk through these five speeches with you, look at them in the text of Scripture, and see emerging from each one of these speeches a fantastic, important aspect of who our God is and what He does. I do not want us to go away from the sermon today thinking about anyone in any major way except for Yahweh, except for the Lord God. Because this is God revealing himself to Abraham and to us. And we're going to see that it's, it's, I think, helpful. So, setting. We're going to start there with Abraham's 99 years old. This is not just marking for us Abraham's age. It is establishing the significance of the covenant. What is the significance regarding Abraham's age? He's old. That's the significance. God made this promise a long time to go to him. Nearly a quarter of a century before, God already said the things he's going to say in chapter 17. Nothing new. I mean, there's a few details added. For example, instead of just saying, this land, I promise you, he's going to say, this land of Canaan. And there's some new revelation. The timeline is revealed. And next year, something's going to happen. By the time you're 100, something's going to happen. Other than that, this is the same covenant he gave in chapter 12. Land, seed, and blessing. It's the same promises. But he promised 24 years before when he pulled him out of Ur, a pagan land, a pagan man, and called him to worship him. This is 24 years prior when he was already an old man. And he's only older. And by the way, that, that's not me being rude. That's an emphasis over and over in the text. Both he and his wife, they keep saying, they're old. <laughs> okay? Why did God, is it too late? Did God forget? Was he cryptic and he really didn't mean the promise he gave maybe there's some deeper hidden meaning in abraham and sarah they just sort of missed it and they said well we, we, we guess we didn't understand all that god was saying what what's going on here abraham and sarah i don't believe in this text are described as necessarily faithless i don't believe the text describes them as skeptics as sinful doubters, angrier and bittered because God has not delivered on his promise. It's not at all the tone of the text, not at all. There, there's no rebukes of them by God. But I do think it's fair to assess from this text that Abraham and Sarah are hopeless, that they're resigned. You see that in the text, we're going to get to it, but in one of the speeches, when God promises Abraham 
a son through Sarah, he says, Ishmael will do. Ishmael's a better choice because he's here. And I'm 99, remember? And Sarah's no spring chicken either. So he's hopeless. He's resigned. He's resigned. It's going to be Ishmael. That's just the way it's going to be. And then in chapter 18, we see that Sarah's resigned. She's, she's postmenopausal. It's not going to happen. She's resigned as well. So I don't think we should take from this that Abraham and Sarah are upset or that they are um, still like, what does God say? He's lied to us. They're human. That's what they are. And they're saying, yeah, we must have missed something along the way. Because <laughs> it's, it's too late. They resigned. But God breaks into their resignation. God breaks into their hopelessness with an incredible reminder. And this is the significant point of the whole text. The incredible reminder is that it doesn't matter who they are. It only matters who he is. It doesn't matter how old they are when he's the ancient of days. It doesn't matter how worn out they are when God never sleeps and never grows tired and never slumbers. This whole text is God reminding them of his covenant, confirming the covenant with them again on the basis of who he is in his essential characteristics. So my encouragement to you in a practical way, brothers and sisters, is that you allow the revelation of God by himself to break into your hopelessness. And remember who he is. Be reminded of who he is. We'll be reminded by looking at these speeches. The first speech is in chapter 1 when God appears to the aged Abraham and he says, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. We looked at this last, last week. Almighty God. Compound name in the Hebrew. El Shaddai. The God from the mountain. Potential root of that. We're not certain. The Greek translation of this Hebrew means the one who constrains nature. Every time El Shaddai is used in Genesis, it's a description of a natural issue of childbirth or the lack of it. El Shaddai, the all-powerful one. The one who has no limits no problem constraining the very world he has created. He forms the world with good. And then he conforms it to do his bidding. This is the God. And this is how he introduces himself to Abraham. His expectation follows. He says, now, so walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me. Literally in the Hebrew, be in my face, be in front of my face. The Latin term that is used uh, classically, coram deo, in the presence or in the face of God. And the idea is we live, and he's calling Abraham to live in his presence, to live in his face. This is a re-upping of the promise, the covenant he gave to Adam when God gave him his presence 
And in that covenant of works he gave to Adam, he calls Adam to, and Eve to walk in his presence, to be in his presence, to walk in the cool of the day. And he comes and his face is in there. But remember, when they sinned, they turned their face and they went eastward. They turned from the face of God. This is a reminder that Abraham and Sarah, we're going to see, is the key to the seed promise to Adam and Eve. Walk before me. And then he says, and be blameless. That word blameless in the Hebrew as well is interesting. It doesn't necessarily mean sinless, though that could be an implication of it. It means whole, complete, sincere. Like in wholeness, in totality. And so this is the idea. Because I am the almighty God, then in my presence live with sincerity and wholeness. It means this. Look at nothing else but me. In wholeness, in completeness, turn from looking at the barrenness of your wife's womb, turn from looking at your own resignation or the plots you have made and the plans you have, and just look and be, look up at me and be remembered, I am the Almighty God, you are not. Walk before me, be blameless, be whole. Now, he doesn't end there. Having given the expectation following the promise, he says, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. And of course, this is, as I said, a reworking of the covenant from back in chapter 12, the first time God even spoke. He reaffirms the covenant. I will make my covenant. Now, just pause very quickly, very briefly. Over and over again in this text, the possessive pronoun my comes in front of covenant, my covenant. God never once says Abraham's covenant, your covenant. He doesn't ever once say, remember your vows, Abraham. Remember what you promised me. Remember you promised me you'd follow me, you'd believe in me. Never says that once. It's always my covenant. Because God is not really concerned about what Abraham has said or not said. God is merely concerned with what he has promised. And that's a real encouragement. Because do we keep our word? If our hope, they're hopeless, if our hope rests in our word, there is no hope. But if this is God's, the Almighty's covenant, that means something. And he'll say it over and again, my covenant. Even when he calls Abraham to obedience and faith to circumcise his son, he says, don't break my covenant. He doesn't even turn and say, okay, now this is your covenant now. He doesn't, it's still my, God's covenant, still his, no matter what. I think it's important that God's call to Abraham is a call to human holiness. It is a call to devotion. It is a call to walk before him and be blameless. But I think it's equally, I know it's equally important that the concept in this text and throughout the rest of the scripture is that Abraham's devotion is not the contingency upon which the divine promise rests. There is no human contingency on a covenant when it's made by a gracious God. There is a reaction. There is an intended response. 
There is a responsibility that follows the promise, but not one that causes or assures or makes true the promise of God. The divine promise is the means by which people become holy. Holiness is not the means by which people receive the promise. The order matters significantly. Devotion is the fruit of the covenant of grace, not its root. So holy devotion is not the condition that God lays on Abram so that he might receive the promise. Rather, devotion is the natural expectation of those who have received promise. So this is a pretty powerful first speech, right? So how would you expect Abraham to respond to the first speech? Appropriately. And he does. The very next word says, And Abram fell on his face. He responds appropriately to this very important declaration. It's natural. It's instinctive. It's the proverbial definition of what we call the fear of the Lord. See, Abraham Abram heard God's declaration of power. He understood God's expectation of devotion. He believed the promise of covenant mercy, and this humbled him deeply. And this, this is a side note. This isn't the point of the text. But Christian, this is exactly what understanding the gospel does. When you hear God's declaration of power in Christ, understand what he expects, repent and believe, and then receive that covenant mercy, if the response is anything but humble falling before him, then you haven't heard, understood, or received it. Any sort of response that says, well, that God is sure nice and all, and good thing I have the good sense to receive him, has completely missed the boat. It's completely missed it. Humility is the only natural response to the gifts of God. It's the only natural response. So God breaks into Abraham's, Abram's hopelessness with simple but profound assurance, with certainty, and it's simply this. Abram, I am all-powerful. I'm all-powerful. Did you forget that? Did you forget what it means that God is God? That the three-letter three term, G-O-D, God, means he's God, all-powerful. God proclaims his omnipotence. Abraham falls on his face in humility. But did you notice how then God draws near compassionately? Then Abraham fell on his face, and God talked to him. El Shaddai now comes near the humbled servant, and speaks to him compassionately. This is, again, we could go so many, so many layers here. This is not the main point of the text, but I think it's so significant. Our God is not only the omnipotent one, but he's the omnipotent one that comes near his people. He's no, no, not only the one who is out there, He's the one who is out there who seeks to draw near. That's a truth. It isn't just here in Genesis. That is the scripture. That is from Genesis to Revelation. 
So he draws near into this second speech. What does he do in the second speech? This is in, in verses uh, 5 or 4 on down through verse 8. Second speech here, he, first he renews the covenant promise. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. Okay, renews the covenant promise. Two, he changes Abram's name to Abraham. Well, it's not really a change in name so much as it is a play on words, and we're going to get to that in a, in a, in a moment. We'll emphasize that. So he changes Abram's name to Abraham. And then three, he emphasizes the covenant extends beyond Abraham. So he says, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. And then he extends, he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Not just fruitful, exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations, plural, of you. And kings, plural, shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I'll be their God. This is the emphasis that's not found in the other covenants. Yes, God promised to make Abraham a great nation, but this is the first time he extends that and says, oh, and it's going to go beyond you. He constantly repeats, your descendants after you, after you, after you. Of course, this makes a lot of sense. Remember, Abraham is 99 years old. He's beginning to think about, as people do, after me. And God says, after you, my covenant will not end. It will keep going even when you don't. Even when you're dead, the covenant continues on. Now that itself should be an evidence that the covenant did not rely upon Abraham's faithfulness, but upon God's faithfulness. Because if it relied upon Abraham's faithfulness or was contingent on Abraham's faith in any way, then when he dies, the covenant dies. But because it continues after him, it means it wasn't about him really at all anyways. It continues after him and after them and after them and after them and after them and, after them and so on. So the emphasis of the covenant extends beyond Abraham. The forever principle is embedded in here. The covenant promise of blessing land and seed is not only to Abraham and to his son, but his sons, his descendants, the nations, plural, the kings, plural. And then furthermore, the text says an everlasting land, an everlasting possession, an everlasting covenant, eternal. By the way, this implies that the covenant cannot be merely even for the people of Israel as we know them nationally. It cannot just be about that place in the Middle East because no matter what nation it is, no matter what people it is, no matter what place it is, it's not everlasting. It must extend beyond even time itself and borders of land itself. It must extend into eternity for this to be true. What abundant faithfulness of God. What abundant faithfulness. Now the name change of Abram is actually a very explicit part of his faithfulness, expression of his faithfulness. Abram uh, means, uh, in the Hebrew, exalted father. Ab Abu is the name for father in Hebrew, and Ram is the idea of high or lifted one. So high father, exalted father. But Abraham actually doesn't exist as a name as a meaning until this. It's, it's actually not, an, and no one else was named Abraham in all the world when Abraham was. This is made up, right? It's actually a play on words rather than a new name. 
The word hamon in Hebrew means multitude or many. And so what God did is he said, I'm going to call you not Abram, but Ab-Hamon-Ram. He added a word to his name, multitudes. So we say that, and the Hebrew smoothed it out because it's kind of weird, Abraham. You see, the idea there is the exalted father, it's not like I'm taking away something from you. You're no longer the high exalted father. I'm adding something to you. You're now the exalted father of many, of multitudes. And that's the affirmation, the assurance of his abundant faithfulness. That what I promised to you, Abraham, what I promised to you will never end and your name is going to be a perpetual reminder. It's fascinating. The, Moses was very careful, and the rest of the Hebrew authors were very careful. So before that verse, before Genesis 17, uh, 5, every time Abram is mentioned, it's Abram in the Scripture. After this verse, even in this chapter, Abram is never mentioned again in the whole of the Bible. It's Abraham every time. And the reason, and so they were very careful. They didn't slip. I've slipped many times in our series of Genesis to an Abram, Abraham. They didn't slip once. Moses wasn't going to slip once because he wanted to be a, a, a perpetual reminder of the covenant of God, even in the name of the patriarch. Abraham, father of many, because my promises are abundant, because my faithfulness is abundant. You're the abundantly you're the abundant father because of my abundant faithfulness. That's what's going on in the name change. So the first speech, God's absolute power is displayed. In the second speech, God's abundant faithfulness is displayed. Abundant faithfulness to the word of his promise, to my covenant. But then once again, notice the nearness. Not only in the power do you see him come near and talk, but you see the nearness and the abundant faithfulness. God, in his speech, God calls him, changes his name, and then I love this part in verse 7 when he says, and I'll establish my covenant, and then he pauses. Between me and you, Abraham, the two of us. Now, what's fascinating to me about that is if Abraham or anyone, let's say someone like Moses, were to say, it's me and God against the rest of you, that is immediately, it happens to Moses, by the way, that is immediately rebuked and judged swiftly. Our author knew that. But it's not at all a rebuke for God to come near us and say, it's me and you. He has the authority to do that. In fact, he does that not only to Abraham here, but he does that to us. Your fellow heirs with the Son of God, with Christ. Joint heirs. I call you no longer uh, servants, but sons. God raises his people up to him when he comes near. If man seeks to raise himself up to God, that is a little bit arrogant. But for God to raise the hopeless to him, that is faithfulness. That is abundance. That is blessing. And it's exactly what he does to Abraham. So God breaks into hopelessness with declaration of absolute power and assurance of abundant faithfulness. The third speech is in 9 through 14. 
won't read this or go through this. Went through this last week. You can go back if you were not here or you did not hear it. You can go back and you can listen to that sermon, I think, on the internet. Essentially, this is the heart of the theophany. This is the heart of the revelation that God brings. It's the promise of the sign to remind Abraham of his power and faithfulness. And in the sign, he reminds Abraham that he is sovereign over seed. The seed promised in Genesis 3, preserved with Noah and his sons through the seed of Shem, will come now through Abraham, and that seed will bring eternal life. That's Christ. He promises in this sign, it's a reminder that the covenant family will be built first through Abraham, then through all the families, the eternal church of God through the circumcision of the heart, not the flesh. And then it is a promise or a a sign that calls the one who's received it to wholehearted devotion and worship, to be kings and priests before God as he had called us to, that God will circumcise the heart, regenerate the soul to make us wholly devoted to him. That's what the sign is. And so we actually see this is the shift. This is the different one. This is the one where God doesn't say something about himself, but now he calls, he says something or he expects something of Abraham. Now you keep my covenant, he says. So God expects faith and devotion. He expects this. He even demands it. The covenant does not require it. Paul the apostle is trying to make this very clear. In the book of Romans chapter 4, he makes it very obviously clear that Abraham was circumcised after having received the promise and having received by faith, he was justified on the basis of faith alone. Abraham believed God and this was imputed to him as righteousness. And Paul the apostle in 4 is like, you have to know that Genesis chapter 15 comes before Genesis 17. You have to know that. The circumcision is the evidence of Abraham's reception. It's not the cause or the contingency upon it. But let's not forget that in understanding the declarations of who God is and what he promises, in understanding the power of God and the faithfulness of God, this ought to cause a response. This ought to cause a response, right? Faith. Receive the covenant then. Devotion to him, the giver of the covenants. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and it causes a response of devotion to Christ alone. That is real. That is Christian. That is not legalism or law. It's truth. God's covenant does require action on Abraham's part, not just not to receive the promise, but because he has received. Because God is absolute in power, abundantly faithful, he justly commands faith and devotion. But we want to move to the fourth speech. It's marked again in verse 15 with, and by the way, in case you hadn't noticed, each of these speeches uh, linguistically is marked with God said, then God said to Abraham. That's how we know it's another speech in there. Then God said to Abraham, verse 15. But this shifts because no longer is he going to talk about Abraham. He's going to talk about his wife. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, that's the way I always pronounce her name. I know, I don't know how to pronounce it. No one really knows how to pronounce it. Sarai, Sarai, Sarah, all those different things kind of loses its, but we do have to notice the change because that's a big thing going on here. As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah, Sarah, shall be her name. So in this 
Fourth speech, God is expressing a name change to Abraham's wife as well. Now, this is fascinating because up to this point, the assumption, the implication was that his wife would be also receive the promises and be the bearer of the seed. Makes sense, right? Based on the Genesis principle that when they get married, they're one flesh. But it's never been explicitly stated in Genesis. It's never been said to Abraham and Sarah, to Abram and Sarai. This is the first time she's sort of brought into the picture in this regard. Now, that explains why it is that both of them concocted that whole scheme to do a surrogacy through Hagar. I mean, she had not been explicitly stated to be the one to receive the promise. Now, to sort of even backtrack what I just said with that, though that's tr true about the statement there, it, it's, it's so obvious, I don't think God had to explicitly state it. I mean, it's based upon the principle of Genesis chapter 2 that God had already laid out. One man, one woman, one lifetime. You didn't need the surrogacy, Abraham. You didn't need that. But it, now it comes explicitly through. Now God is sort of putting it on the bottom shelf. So first, there is the name change in this speech. There is the name change of Sarah. Once again, not really a name change. In fact, it's just a spelling in the Hebrew. Um, it's actually a, it's, it's a movement from an older version to a newer version of the same name. Uh, there's two theories on her name change out there in the scholarly world. The first one is based upon a Greek translation of it, not even on the Hebrew at all, and that's the idea that perhaps Sarah, as her original name was in the Greek, translated into Greek, meant to strive, but Sarah meant to rule. And so there's that idea. Um, I don't think that's correct. The reason for that is it's, there's no Hebrew basis for that. That's just a Greek translation years later. And so I don't think that's right. The, probably the more likely reason for this change is they both meant the same thing. They both meant princess or female ruler. It was just a spelling change. So why the change if it doesn't have any significant change of meaning? This is brand new. A new beginning for a barren womb. A new name to go along with a new beginning, because he's going to say, in a year, everything's going to change. This, by the way, does have scriptural, um, uh, this happens other times. You, you know in the New Testament, we have the famous apostle Paul. His name was Saul, right? He changed to Paul. That's actually the same thing. There's no mean cha uh, change in the meaning Saul is simply the Hebrew version, and Paul is the Greek version. Well, it made sense. Why would, he use the, why would the Scriptures use the Greek version of his name? Because he was the apostle to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. So it really was a, not a change in meaning, but a change in focus, a change in direction. And that's what we see here. The old deadness of her womb is, gone, is going away, and a new Sarah princess is emerging. That's the concept here. So he alters her name first with a new era, new beginning. Secondly, he blesses her with nearly identical blessing that he gave to Abraham. Notice verse 16. I will bless her 
and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her. Repetitive. And she shall be mother of nations, plural. Kings, plural. Of peoples, plural, shall be from her. So very similar to what he said in verse 6. Nations of you, kings will view. Nations from her, kings from her. A little, just a little, little hidden thing. When you read the plural blessing given to Abraham, you can assume that perhaps God is referring not only to Isaac, spoiler alert, that's their son that's coming, not only to Isaac, but Ishmael, right? He has many nations. When it says plural, I'll make nations or kings out of you, Abraham, that makes sense. He's talking about Ishmael and Isaac, right? Furthermore, after Sarah dies, Abraham marries another woman named Keturah, and he has a couple of kids through her. And so they also, like, okay, well, we see it. Abraham, multiple kids, multiple nations, multiple kings. But what do you do with the idea that Sarah is promised to have multiple nations, plural, from her, but she only has one son? It can't be Ishmael then, right? It can't be Keturah's children. Who are the plural nations that will come through Sarah? We are the plural nations that come through Sarah. The church, God's people, the ones who come through the promise, the ones who come through the seed that comes through Isaac, that comes through Jacob, that comes through Judah, and so on and so on and so on, that comes through one with an unused womb. Mary will have a son, the seed. And all in him are kings and priests before God. That's, what, that's the only implication you can come from Sarah having the promise of plural nations. It has to be the Gentiles. It has to be the people to come, the church. He blesses her with nearly identical promise. I think you actually have the mystery, it's called the New Testament, this mystery of the church embedded just in that plural nations there. But then again, once you start reading the Bible, the whole thing, you start to see how it all just amazingly fits together. But did you note in this, as we think about it, God's remarkable grace to Sarah? God had not made this promise explicitly to her before. The last account we read of Sarah wasn't so flattering, right? The last account when their whole deal with the surrogacy thing didn't work out and she just wants to get rid of, you know, erase things, get rid of Hagar and Ishmael, kick them out. That's the last thing we read about her in the previous chapter 13 years before. It's not so flattering. I think this kind of helps defies the concept that is so easily out there that God rewards the faithful with favor. No, he gives his grace to make his people faithful. Favor is not the reward of God upon the faithful. Favor, grace, is the gift of God upon the unfaithful that makes them more faithful than they ever thought they could be. Now, I'm not criticizing Sarah, but neither her nor her husband have ever really proved themselves worthy of this blessing of God. But God, Jehovah, he is absolute in power. 
He is abundantly faithful. He does command faith and devotion because he's remarkably gracious. Remarkably gracious. And we have a little parentheses in our story. Abraham's response. What we have actually following this speech is the first time Abraham says anything. All this point, God's just been talking. And so Abraham, the first thing he says is he laughs. He laughs. We don't know, what, we don't know how that was. It says he fell on his face and laughed. There is far too much speculation about why he fell on his face and laughed out there. I don't want to get too far into that. Once again, I don't believe that this was sinful. I believe this is normal, right? This is natural. Because he says in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? You see, this is the definition of incredible, unbelievable. I, not, there's not a one of us who could say, well, Abraham, where's your faith? It's impossible. It can't happen. If anyone wants to criticize Abraham for laughing here, then they should probably look inward if I were to tell you that there is a brand new car waiting for you out there. I bought it this morning and put it out there for all of you. I'm Oprah. You all get a car. You would laugh because it's incredible. It doesn't make any sense, right? It's no, that can't happen. This is even more incredible. Now, the sort of the um, parentheses here is I want to jump over because we have an occasion in chapter 18 that Abraham's not alone in his laughter. In chapter 18, we have an event take place, which we're going to look at in a couple of weeks, but an event take place probably very soon after this. This probably takes place within a few days or a few weeks of what's happening here. And three heavenly visitors come visit Abraham. He is excited about them. He welcomes them in. He gives them great hospitality. He tells Sarah, hey, go get some food. Let's feed these guys. And then he wants to talk with them. And so they're sitting there. Um, after he's standing and they're sitting, at the, this is 18 um, and verse 8. So he stands by them while they're eating their, their, their Bedouin yogurt, uh, just as a good host. And they say to him, where is uh, Sarah, your wife? Now, what's fascinating about that is in the story, I don't think Sarah's been introduced yet. She's been in the background preparing all the food. She hasn't come out at all. In fact, she's even not there at the time. She's behind the door. She's, she's doing in the custom of the time. She's the servant. She's the one serving the guest. She's out of sight, but they know her name. It's the first, in, first indication in the text that these aren't just normal visitors, There'll be more indication in the text about that. But so, so Abraham says, she's here in the tent behind me, essentially what he means there. And this verse 10 says, he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. And so actually there's three veils going on there. There's behind him, her, his back, the speaker's back was to her. And she's got the tent door behind her. That's one, two. And then it says, now Sarah and Abraham were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself. So she didn't even laugh out loud. 
There's another barrier of her body, she laughs. And immediately it says, she says in herself, after I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? So he heard through the back turned, through the tent, and through her heart, through her body, into her own heart and mind. And I don't even know how you laugh in your heart. I don't even know what that means. I don't, I don't know if it's actually a thought of a chuckle or if it's just a, a smile. I don't even know. But the Lord is like, why is she laughing? So that was the last clue that like, okay, this isn't a normal visitor. But she laughs too. So Abraham laughs and she laughs. And once again, I don't think it's the same. I don't think she is filled with unbelief. She's not mocking God. It's not sinful laughter. I don't think it's a fair assessment. I think it's the wonder, the marvel, the questioning. It's real. It's raw. It's human. How is this impossible? This is incredible. By the way, God doesn't rebuke her, though some read it that way. I don't think that's the way it should be read because she then denies it. Says, I didn't laugh. And the Lord says, yeah, you did. And that's the way the story ends. Why does she laugh? Well, she says why she laughs. It's impossible. I'm too old. It says in the text, just to leave no doubt, past the age of childbearing. She's postmenopausal. There is no possible way for an egg in her to be fertilized because it doesn't exist. It's similar, not the same thing, similar to the impossibility of a young woman, Mary, who has a virgin birth. It's impossible. You laugh at the impossible. We smile at the impossible. It's not going to happen. But the Lord's response to Sarah is similar to his response to Abraham. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? That word hard in the Hebrew means marvelous, wonderful. It means is there anything too supernatural? too impossible, too marvelous for the Lord? What is going on with this laughter here? Well, I believe what it is simply is that Abraham and Sarah have resigned themselves to the normal rhythms of life, to a certain hopelessness has set in, and they're jolted by the words of promise. If nothing can be hid from him, even our intimate thoughts, what can be too hard for him? What is incredible to us is normal for God. There is no supernatural from God's perspective. It's all natural. It's who he is. So I don't believe they were sinning or unbelieving or staggering at the promise. Rather, they're making unwitting prophecies because I don't know when I know God is eternal and his sovereign decrees he's determined the end from the beginning but this is the first time we find out what the name of their son is going to be and the name of their son is going to be God says you know what I think we'll call your son you should get to call your son Yitzhak you know what Yitzhak means he laughs that's what Yitzhak means so Abraham and Sarah unwittingly prophesy the name of their son through their laughter now, some have suggested, because it's found in verse in chapter 17, that it's Ab- he is Abraham. Abraham laughs. And so God says, well, Abraham laughs, so I'll call it he laughs. I think that's perfectly probable or plausible. Um, but when you have Abraham laughing and then Sarah laughing, the he also in the context could mean God laughs. 
Some ancient scholars think that, a, that Isaac's first name, though it's not found in the scripture, it's in tradition outside of scripture, is Yitzhakel. God laughs. And the idea there is <laughs> nothing is too incredible for El Shaddai. Nothing. Isn't God remarkably gracious to Abraham and Sarah? Isn't he remarkably gracious? Last speech and we're done. The first audible response from Abraham is, verse 18, have you thought about Ishmael? Because he makes a great candidate to fulfill your promises. He's already here. I don't have to wait for him. And the Lord emphasizes in a little Hebrew poem there, uh, Ishmael's great, love Ishmael, it's not Isaac. Isaac is your son I'm talking about. Isaac it will be, Isaac through Sarah, that's it. But then this is the remarkable part of the final speech, but he says, but don't worry, Abraham, I'm gonna take care of Ishmael too. So I'm gonna take care of him too. In fact, he's gonna have, he gives a very similar promise, nations and kings, princes through him. In fact, interestingly, 12 princes through him. Kind of sounds like 12 tribes through Isaac. Even an equal blessing in the sense of number to Isaac. But isn't God compassionately merciful? If we thought Sarah wasn't worthy, Ishmael's the illegitimate son that shouldn't have even been there. And yet, God turns his heart toward Ishmael. When Abraham says, what about Ishmael? Compassionately merciful. And then he says, this time next year, all these truths about me you will feel and experience. So, the end of the story, Abraham swiftly obeys and circumcises every male child. Twice it says, that very same day. <laughs> okay. Today we'll do it then. He believes this God. He believes the revelation. Still an old man. Still 99. Sarah's still 90. She didn't suddenly reverse the way of nature and become able to have children. But hopelessness has given way to hope. How do we know it's been given way to hope? Because that phrase, that very same day he circumcised he received the sign. He said, it's true. Hopelessness gave way to hope because the Lord is absolute in power, abundantly faithful, expecting faith in his word and devotion, remarkably gracious and compassionately merciful. Let this, the thoughts or the knowledge of this God urge you to love him Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths.